Welcome to the Healthcare Excellence Through Technology podcast. Designed by the healthcare industry for the healthcare industry, subscribe to stay up to date with the latest in digital health developments to help you on your digital transformation journey. Hi, Ben. Hi, Chris. So I guess uh, maybe for, for the wider audience, uh, maybe we could do some kind of uh, intro. So I guess I'll introduce myself. So I'm Dilsh, Dr. Dilshan Arawawala. I'm a consultant in anaesthetics and intensive care and also the chief clinical information officer for uh, Broomfield Hospital in Chelmsford. Chris, do you want to go next? Yeah, uh, I'm Chris Bates. I'm a research and analytics director at TPP. Uh, we are a supplier of electronic health records uh, based in the UK. Uh, ben? Uh, my name's Ben Goldacre. I'm a doctor and a researcher and I run the data lab at Oxford and we're a fairly unusual group in that we're a truly mixed team of clinicians, traditional academic researchers and full stack commercial grade software developers and we take large health data sets and we turn them into academic papers but also into live interactive data-driven tools and services. Well, so, I mean, I've obviously heard of um... Uh, TBP in terms of um, uh, primary care uh, electronic uh, patient records and, and Ben. Um, interestingly, I was actually talking about uh, this podcast in the pub with one of my mates and uh, saying, oh yeah, there's a podcast with a guy called Ben Goldacre. And I go, I, I know him from, I've seen him on these uh, conferences and he's got, he's got a lot of energy. And he went, yeah, he's the guy that wrote Bad Science, isn't he? And I went, no, he's not. And he went, yes, he is. And so I went, oh, look, and I, here you go. Here's my copy. It's all a bit oh, yellow from 10, 10 years one. old. Well, yeah. that's, that's 62p to me if you pay full cover price. I do also separately have a showing off career, um, writing books and doing that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, Wait, I mean, I mean and, and also actually separately, a sort of separate strand of talking to policymakers about how to make better use of data. And, and, Frankly, I think, firstly, those involve quite similar skills, but also, if I could, I would um, I'd set up a training programme to get doctors and researchers to do as many things that are not being a doctor and doing research as possible, because doing that on the side, but, you know, almost yeah. everyone I meet, actually, who works in informatics in particular, who's a clinician or a researcher, has has persistently broken every single piece of standard careers advice in uh, medicine and research. Yeah. All so, so this is not necessarily a plug for the book because I, I get no commission, right? but I would say it's probably one of the most honest books that I've read. And actually it confirms a lot of what I've been thinking for many years uh, about research, um, you know, um, if, I'm, if I'm honest. And, you know, and it comes down to kind of the kind of behavioral science about you know why we think the way we think and, and i think often we're looking for answers where there aren't any um but this kind of brings me i guess to what we're here to talk about um which is what you've been doing um with covid and and i guess you know when, when you know as a clinician i'm dealing with bits of data you know in, in small departments maybe a hospital you know but what you guys have done, yeah, what you're asked to do, yeah, is on a completely different kind of level. So, so I guess you know, the, the first thing I, I want to know is um, what were you doing when you got that phone call to, uh, and, and what were you asked? Well, I mean, actually, what, do you want to do this or shall I, Chris? You do it. <laughs> so, so, well, first of all, were you together at the same time? And do you know each other from before? Well, we don't. And it's interesting, actually. So I... I came up with the idea for, um, for Open Safely um, 
after a bunch of meetings in NHS England where we were looking at what the centre was doing with various data sets and it was lots of great stuff around hospital data but it was clear that nobody um, had their eye on primary care data and it and uh, it was clear that we needed to do something quite new um, that was on a Tuesday and then on the Friday after we'd firmed up a few of the sort of possible options we had a call with Chris and John Parry from TPP which was about doing some research on pop-ups and that again is a completely untapped space. I mean, there's a huge amount of basic informatics work that needs to be done by researchers and there's no funding stream for it. It's barely got a name or a presence in the UK. There's, there's informatics professionals in terms of greasing the wheels and project managing new implementations of new software projects and lots of really fantastic stuff around digital leadership, but research into you know, the science of how we store, represent and retrieve information to give the right information to the right doctor at the right time. There's some stuff on it, much more globally, but just nothing like enough. So we had a call to talk about that in general and some work that we wanted to do on pop-ups in particular. And then at the end of the call, 55 minutes in, there was a moment when someone went, all right, is there anything else? And I said, well, there is this one small thing I was just wondering, you know, we could maybe build the world's largest ever electronic health records research platform, uh, probably quite cheaply and quickly, if we stood up an analytics platform inside your data center where the data already resides and it's ISO 97001 certified and you know what you're doing and you know how to manage the data and we know how to do research in it and we're quite good at open reproducible methods and platforms and what do you think? And to their enormous credit and to my complete amazement, although now I know them well, I, you know, it was a foregone conclusion, but they immediately replied, well, I won't swear, but they, they said, holy hell, yeah. Uh, and so that's where we are when we've built it and it exists. So Chris, I mean, you know, so, so I guess from your uh, perspective as a kind of supplier, but also someone who's got a really strong analytical background, I mean, what was the kind of, uh, I guess the pluses uh, of, of working with Ben, obviously he's got his energy and he's got his brain, but I mean, you know, what did you see as being the problems and the kind of challenges? I mean, I know what I see on a day-to-day -day basis, but I'm just curious from a supplier perspective. Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing to say is that we've been pretty heavily involved in the sort of COVID response at that point, um, with a pretty serious eye from digital health perspective from sort of January, February. Um, so we kind of geared up to do this kind of thing and we knew that there'd be some enormous advantages to to analytics and research we could support but we certainly didn't think of anything at, at that scale so um the advantages when ben suggested it were one we knew that we were working with uh, a much more technical research team um who have this kind of blend of uh, developer epidemiologists who can kind of talk the language that we talk in terms of ehr developers um, but then can also talk to the more pure research teams and sort of straddle a gap, which um, from our perspective uh, does cause some challenges that, that often um, finding that bridge between researchers and, and the vendors ha just hasn't happened before. So we knew that that would happen. Uh, and we also knew that, um, uh, that with Ben talking to NHS England and talking to policy people, um, that some of the governance challenges, et cetera, were going to be covered off uh, collaboratively and pretty quickly. Um, so very, I mean, the decision was, you know, yes, we'd love to support that. Let's have a really quick conversation with 
the directors here in the company, which I think went on for about 30 seconds and within five minutes we called Ben back and said, let's crack on, you know, let's do it. And then it became a whirlwind of Zoom calls and a Slack channel and, and away we went and it was everything we kind of hoped uh, a collaboration like that could be, a deep collaboration where we were very much working on um, the analytic problems and the governance problems together. Um, um, and then, as Ben said, we were able to stand something up which was very, very useful very quickly. I think you know, the key word you said there is, I was just the key word was collaboration, right? I mean, you know, because, I, I mean, we have these problems where, you know, you can kind of get the data out, but unless you understand how that platform's been built and exactly what fields are what, you're always going to struggle. But, and, you know, and actually as a supplier, you lose a lot of the value if all you are is effectively a storage uh, vessel. But Ben, sorry, I didn't want to jump in there. We would say no, so. no, I mean, uh, that's absolutely right. And, and, and that has been the glory of the Open Safety Project. I mean, we, we didn't ship in five weeks by accident. It was, it was the perfect combination. And we've done a little bit of kind of reflecting on why it, on why it worked. And it's, it's partly because we had the A-team from so many different disciplines well represented. So TPP have been absolutely amazing and they know their data so well and they know how to optimize databases across it so well. Um, also, we had the EHR, the Electronic Health Records Research Group at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, led by Liam Smith, who I've known for 10 or 15 years. And I grabbed instantly because they are my lead brand for knowing where the bodies are buried in electronic health records. You know, they've got folks in their team who've done entire PhDs just on sanity checking ethnicity data in primary care against hairs and, and you know, other bits like that. Um, and they've got huge amounts of EpiSmarts. Um, and the extra bit of the, um, the extra bit of the, of the team is obviously NHS England. So we've done all of this working with and on behalf of NHS England. Um, and that's partly for managing the information governance, but also for, for getting you know, task and relevance uh, correct, because we only want to answer questions that matter. Um, so that's also why we talk to folk like Patrick Balance and Chris Whitty to get um, steers on the kind of questions that they want, um, that they want answering. Um, so, so what were the questions what, you know, that you were asked? So what was the big question that you were asked that started this whole piece of work around COVID? Well, I mean, the first thing that we wanted to do that we knew had to be done urgently and with a huge scale of data was just the very simple question, um, who's getting COVID and who's dying from COVID? Now, that might sound like a simple question. You could just do it by looking at who pitches up in hospital. But actually, if you want to do big data analysis like that, first of all, you want to have good data on the previous medical history, the socioeconomic status, the BMI, the full you know, everything that is possible to know about each individual patient. And you want to have that for a very large number of people. You don't want to manually collect data from people in hospital beds, especially if many of them are very, very unwell and ventilated. You also want to have the same quality of information about the people who haven't got COVID because you're making these kinds of comparisons. Um, you also need numbers on a huge scale because if you want to start investigating whether the risks of death from COVID are higher or lower in people from Bangladesh compared to people from India or people on hydroxychloroquine compared to people who aren't on hydroxychloroquine. To put it in very, very morbid terms, you need enough deaths in each of those small categories of people that you've got a chance of detecting a statistically significant difference in the risk of death between uh, one group and another. And if there are only 100,000 people in that category, 
then you need to have data from the full population because you want to have all 100,000 of those people in your data set. You also need really current data and that's really important and that's something that's never been done before in a research analytics platform. So previous models like um, CPRD, the GP research database, that has a few million patients worth of data and the full primary care record and it can be linked to secondary care data sets but not only is it a small sample of the whole population, it's also intermittent slow data extracts. Whereas with COVID, we needed to have the outcomes data, death from COVID, uh, instantly, because we needed to ascertain the factors associated with death from COVID during the, the uptick of the first wave, not six months later, which is all that would have been possible with traditional approaches. So if I can ask you just on this thing, so um, you know, through the Digital Academy, and a big shout out to all the cohorts that are out there, um, you know, one thing we learn about data analytics is actually your start point, you've got to have as complete and as accurate um, a data set as you can possibly have, uh, you know, because without that, you, you can end up going in all kinds of different tangents. So, so, so I guess on, on that basis, um, um, you know, with the people that you had in the room, you know, how confident were you around, I guess, the completeness and accuracy of that data? I mean, you said that people have done a work on the, uh, the kind of ethnicity, but also, you know, if you're working with TPP, I mean, they're a major supplier, but they're not the only supplier of, of, of primary care EPRs. So I guess, for, you know, if I was sitting there, I'd be, I'd be there going, okay, bloody hell, these are quite big challenges to start with. Uh, how do I overcome those? Well, so we're also working with EMIS, um, or, and, and hopefully that, that set of data will come online shortly. Um, the, the issue is not so much that you want absolutely perfect data. And I think you've got to be really careful in, in health data science, there has been a really destructive pattern over the years of what I would call kind of Nirvana manana, saying, oh, oh, there's no point in doing that work on pathology data today because, you know, next year, everything's going to be perfectly SNOMED CT compliant. So let's wait until then. Um, so what you want is the best data you can possibly get at a realistic and practical price point and at a realistic and practical time scale. And actually all of research is, it's not about perfect worlds, it's more like a game of scrap heap challenge. You go, okay, with, with 400 million pounds, I could do the perfect research project on this, but I've got 40% of the population's fully HR data, in a secure analytics platform we've thrown up in a hurry and I've also managed to match in uh, CPNS death but not yet ONS death and we've got SUS but it's not going to be any use for outcomes because the time delay on the coding of it is too slow so let's just bin it right you're always doing those kinds of creative iterations and I think again coming back to what Chris was saying about the importance of a of a team with a lot of knowledge across a lot of different disciplines you know deep knowledge of pure epidemiology is really important but also a lot of knowledge across a lot of disciplines is that you can be fluent and creative right so i should say by the way if people think i'm steamrolling the conversation chris bates has actually disappeared to deal with the work <laughs> um, yeah. so um the uh one of the real one of the real um one of the really important skills to get things like open safely up and running and to get good analysis shipping from it is having people who um, can spot opportunities with imperfect resources um, and 
can make the best of those and also can spot opportunities to make imperfect things much more perfect than you would otherwise expect by cross-checking. Um, and actually a really important part of that as well has been the close working between our groups and um, TPP and, and Chris Bates's team. Because EHR vendors working closely with EHR um, epidemiology researchers hasn't really happened very much before. And that's insane to me. I mean, it's a match made in, in heaven, right? Yeah. People like yeah. Chris and his team spend all day every day thinking, oh, is that pop-up trigger from those event codes really going to capture um, people with diabetes who need an HbA1c review? They've got enormous deep knowledge around code lists for identifying people, um, and they know not just how the data is uh, can be used and interpreted and, and fed back, but they also they've got absolutely clear 360 degree full vertical vision of how it's created. At what yeah. points in the interaction with the machine is somebody asserting an event code to the database? And so they've got a really, really deep sense of what's reliable and what's unreliable. Um, it's that, that context, is isn't it? That, that's the key thing is it's the context. You've got the people in the room who understand the context and can do that kind of sense check. And actually that, that kind of translation bit, um, because I think that that's often missing in, in a lot of these conversations. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think also actually a, a last part of the story about why, why it works so well. I mean, you know, we went from literally first discussion um, to uh, our first completed end-to-end -end analysis was five weeks. I think it was seven weeks until our first paper was up on a preprint server, it might have been less. And that paper has now been published as a research paper in Nature, which is the biggest research mm -hmm. journal in the world. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a phenomenal ride. And by the way, that's with literally no funding. I mean, we tried so hard to get money from Welcome, NIHR, MRC. We finally got a grant letter about two weeks ago from MRC. Um, so, I mean, again, when you think about the scale of the resource that's been ploughed into this kind of work and, and productivity, I think, I think maybe that's interesting as well. But just thinking through the, the kind of person story of, of, of why it worked well, and also why everyone's had such fun. Um, a defining feature of Open Safely has been um, people uh, at the kind of top end of organizations um, working down and doing the kind of practical coalface donkey work that they would normally leave to people that they're supervising, right? So to yeah. give concrete examples of that, um, Amir Mehrkar, who we got into project manage the information governance and the contracts around getting additional data sets in. Um, he was previously acting chief medical officer at NHS Digital. And then he came on to open safely as a, as a favor. Um, and suddenly, you know, somebody who previously have had sort of a whole squad of people doing data sharing agreements and DPIAs with him on his behalf in his team, suddenly he's literally doing the line edits with every single person that we're relating to. Yeah. Um, Krishnan Baskaran, who's a fantastic stats prof from London School of Hygiene, um, you know, about, about three weeks in, he said, do you know what, I haven't actually written a line of stata statistical analysis code myself for about two years until I started work on Open Safely. You know, we really had the A, the A team not, um, not working below their station because it's just, you know, as you, as you get to the point where you're organising things, you tend to do less of the hands-on. But, um, 
but I think that's been part of why it's gone so well and partly why it's been so fluent and creative. And it's, it's also funny watching new researchers come into the, to the team and to the Slack channel, you know, and a fantastic transmission dynamics researcher um, a little while ago was saying to Chris, oh, could you do me a quick cross tabs of this versus that um, in this data? And anyone in the group could have done it. I mean, anyone in our team could have done it, but she was new and she just sort of saw that Chris was around and pretty helpful. And um, <laughs> so I've sent her a Slack message saying, just so you know, you've just asked for the like, head of software and director of analytics at TPP to make you a quick cross tabs table. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I, we're, not, we're not fiddly and hierarchical, but, um, but uh, yeah, I think that's a really interesting window. Yeah. yeah. Everyone, everyone was pointing in the same direction. Everyone was focused on the same goal, you know, um, and, you know, and, and, and it's amazing what COVID has done on that. So let, let me ask a question just about the results that you found. Um, so were, were you surprised uh, by those results? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, just to take a step back from specific results, um, yeah. by, by disposition, not out of puritanism, but just because of what I find interesting, I am always more interested in methods than I am in results. Um, but that's the right way that's the right well, way yeah well yeah but again i'm not i'm not presenting that as a kind of you know uh, an open science and rigor pose uh that's like a confession about what i find aesthetically beautiful no, but, but if, you, if you focus today. on the results though then then you may then twist you might, your yeah, methodology well, look, that's yeah, the risk I mean, yeah, but, yeah. yeah separately i'm 100 certain i i am obviously yeah, as yeah. vulnerable as anybody is to unconscious biases there's no there's no question about that um but yeah, there were lots of things that really surprised me. Um, one was the, um, the, the, the relative absence of respiratory diseases as a risk factor. That was a real surprise yeah. to me. Um, the other thing which we, have, we were and, and pretty much remain the only people who could have looked at it properly um, was the issue around ethnicity. So lots of people were finding by looking at hospital data and very sparse data like hairs, people were reporting that... Um, BAME people were at increased risk of death from COVID. But um, we were, and in some respects remain, I'm not aware of anybody else publishing any work on this yet, actually. Um, the only people who are able to look at the full medical history of everyone in the country, including the BAME people and non-BAME people, um, look at their full medical history and assess to what extent their increased risk was mediated by an increased prevalence of um, high BMI, increased prevalence of obesity, um, uh, increased chance of being um, from a more deprived area, and so on. And um, we found that contrary to a lot of people's suspicions, importantly, um, that actually only a very small part of the excess risk for BAME people was mediated by increased prevalence of obesity, diabetes, and so on. And that's really important. Um, so that was the other thing that was, I think, a really important and significant finding from our Nature paper, but also um, surprised me because I actually thought I was I was broadly on the side of, oh, that's 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 that signals probably a mixture of um, probably a little bit of racism and occupational exposure, um, yeah. and a little bit, uh, but but a lot of diabetes, obesity, and so on, and it wasn't. So, so on that point, right? So when you're there, uh, you know, kind of standing out from the crowd because you know maybe everyone else is saying different things about data. Does it make you then question your methodology? Go back and check it and say, you know, am I absolutely right? And also, um, how you've adjusted for all of those variables? Because this is the one thing I've always struggled with with statistics. It is about you know 
how people adjust their data to take out, you know, um, to, so just for confounders, um, you know, and it, it's a kind of a mythical art um, is how I would describe it, uh, which is why I have a lot of cynicism when I read any kind of research papers, if I'm honest. Well, I mean, I don't know about a mystical art. I think um, there are a lot of different approaches that you can take depending on exactly what question you're trying to answer. Um, in our first paper, that was literally, you know, on the uptick of the first wave of a global health emergency, we were setting out to um, not so much to create formal causal associations and not just to produce um, a, a kind of passive description, but really to produce, you know, to, it, was, it was the first window onto factors associated with death from COVID. Now, when you do that kind of work, one thing that people worry about is that you might take multiple bites at the analytic cherry, that you might analyze your data in 28 different ways until you get the signal that you want. Um, and traditionally, the way that we manage that in epidemiology is to write very, very, very wordy uh, narrative descriptions of how we will run the analysis. And that's a, a useful way of pre-specifying your work and avoiding getting into an argument about whether you've modified your analysis or, or, or done it many, many different ways to get the answer that you want. But actually, the design architecture, and we, do, and we have done that for, for our papers, but the design architecture of the Open Safety Analytics platform is such that, by definition, your code is pre-written. And that's actually one of the really powerful and really interesting things about Open Safely. And people can go to opensafely.org, you can read about how it's done, you can see all of the code and how it's implemented from start to finish. Everything on the analytics platform side is open source and freely available for review and, and reuse on, on GitHub. Now, the only way that you can assert um, to the machine that, you, that you've got some code to run is by posting it first on GitHub. And all of our analytic code repositories are open and available for review, critical review, scientific review, and also reuse, efficient reuse by other researchers. And actually, when you, when you write your analytic code before you run your numbers, and it's in public, um, the, the issues around, you know, a, a narrative wordy description in essay format of your um, of your analytics strategy is, if anything, likely to be, uh, well, is definitely likely to be um, more ambiguous than that. You know, uh, th there is a perfect yeah. way, there, there is a really accurate way to describe in language the precise model that you're going to run to get the answer. And it is the language of the software analysis platform that you're using. Yeah. You know, I, I'm often amazed that when I see, you know, these ambiguous very wordy protocols which say oh we'll do mixed effects logistic regression and we'll clear yeah. this term God knows what that means most people who do yeah. research would know what but, that means but, but but more importantly when you read it it's ambiguous and you just find yourself going for god's sake just tell me what <laughs> command are you going to type into data xtme log it variable 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 two pipes what's a random effect Come so, on, just so, show me the I, command I, I, and that's what we yeah. do in open safety so the thing for me is, is actually the fact that you, you publish it first and then you run it because it actually gives confidence that you haven't then, you know, tried to match your, your process so to the result. It's important to be clear, especially thinking about future uses of Open Safely, because yes. we're really keen to get other people using this because we think that this kind of modern, open, collaborative, computational data science approach 
is the right way to go. And, and I've been very concerned by the inefficiencies um, and the very closed approach in some of the sort of remote desktop trusted research environments, because that's people doing analysis really at the bottom of a well. And, and, and this way of doing it that we embody is, is sort of industry standard for data science outside of um, health data science and outside increasingly of the UK. There's something special I think about health data science in the UK hasn't really caught up with those kind of well, why is that open methods think? um look I think a lot of it is cultural and political um I wonder if I think everybody's always doing their best and everybody's responding to incentives in the system and I think a lot of the a lot of the structures we know already in academia are actually quite perverse you know clinicians clinical academics are incentivized on Things like size of grant, glamour of journal, um, number of committees, number of bigwigs on advisory boards. Um, you know, there are all these sort of spurious metrics of success, which are quite remote from delivery. And I think quite reasonably, a very large number of people in the ecosystem of health data science have spent their time very understandably responding to those pressures. Um, but I think at the cost of open delivery, I think also there's a market failure or at least a, a problem with the shape of the market. Um, what we should have had is open collaborative data science platforms like OpenSafely, where the data is accessible to all, where everybody else's code is accessible. Instead, what we have are closed platforms where people have the opportunity to assert, to my mind, very destructive monopolies on access to data, on um, uh, to rent seek on their um, analytics pipelines um, and also monopolies on task. Um, and I think, again, it's not a criticism of any individual or any organization, but I think, um, you know, the funding frameworks uh, have all reinforced those kinds of behaviors. That yeah. said, um, I think there's a lot of pent up um, capacity and energy, especially in more junior researchers, to find new, better, more modern and open ways of working. So I'm very, very optimistic. And, and I think Open Safely really proves the point that you can work in these new ways, that it can be efficient, that you can work in the open and it's not a disaster. You know, we share our code and people may well come along and eat our lunch, as they say in the open source software community, but I doubt it. And we, you know, we did, we did get a nature paper in, in two and a half months you know, and so this, work, yeah. this, this way of working, you know, not to fall into the trap of using the, the sort of standard currency in baubles as a metric of success. But I would say for people who, who engage in some of the kind of um, some of the more old fashioned behaviors and, and methods, I can only say, you know, we worked in this new open way and it was very straightforward. There was no mechanical reason not to work in this way it delivered very efficiently and quickly. And, you know, we, we, we delivered on all of the outcomes that, that people want. And, I mean, with the exception, I suppose, of, of resource. And again, that, that kind of speaks to the issue that you and others have raised around maybe the sort of, not party political, but the kind of, the kind of small p organizational and cultural political stories around how resources are, um, yeah. are, are, are given out. But that's, that's this is all fixable stuff, you know. So I'll just ask you about, you know, so I guess, you know, it's, it's great to be open and transparent and allow people to then use that code themselves. But I guess, you know, one thing that, you know, not necessarily worry about, but I guess it's the, it's the interpretation um, 
of results you know that you know, um, you know what is association causation etc cetera, etc cetera. you know how people are using this because i think especially for something around you know uh like covid which you know all your stuff would just went viral um you know and, and and the question is so do you think people interpreted your results correctly as in you know um the wider through the media etc cetera, etc cetera? uh yeah i'm i'm not aware of any um particularly serious or notable um, misinterpretations. I think um, we've got to remember that actually, you know, having a formal qualification or a role in the system around evaluating evidence is at best only a risk factor for doing that job competently. There are lots and lots of journalists and, and generalists and members of the public and clinicians who've barely thought about or barely had any formal evidence-based medicine training since they were medical students who are very, very, very good at critically thinking through studies. There are plenty of people whose job it is to evaluate evidence who, um, who struggle, and that's completely normal. And I, and I say that not, um, not as a dig against, um, against people in organisations whose job it is to evaluate evidence, but rather to just to flag up that I think it's a real mistake to describe or to think of the public as being this kind of risky, um, capricious, great unwashed mass of people who are queuing up to get things wrong. And actually, you know, I spent a, a decade writing a column in The Guardian and the book that you held up, which is coming up for a million copies sold on how science gets misinterpreted and misrepresented. Yeah. Um, and I, I have documented over the course of my public engagement career dozens, hundreds of examples of people misrepresenting and misunderstanding data who were senior university academics or senior policymakers from pharma companies, but also from, um, from research. And, and I think it's a real mistake to imagine that the, that the public or that journalists are somehow uniquely vulnerable to those misinterpretations. I actually think a lot of the public um, material that I've seen on COVID has been of a very, very high quality. And I think especially in America, I mean, I know that's a very different and peculiar context right now, but especially in America, um, a lot of the more bizarre things that we've seen have come from politicians and not even just, you know, the, the major politician that everyone might think of. Similarly, um, a lot of the really odd stuff that we've seen written and said about hydroxychloroquine has come not from maverick members of the public, but from very senior researchers who've made statements well in excess of the evidence. And so, I, you know, I, 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 I cannot share your concern or the, the sort of implication that somehow the, the public or journalists are a unique... Um... Oh, no, not at all. It wasn't about necessarily, but I guess it, it's about, um, as you said, when people of authority, so, you know, if anyone's reading the news and they hear so, someone of exposition, um, you know, is supporting a certain position or, or taking some bit of evidence and, and taking it forward, you know, the natural thing to do, and we are all guilty of this, is basically saying they are an expert on this, therefore they are probably correct. And, and, and that's the worry with, with so many facts or misinformation, uh, real facts, misinformation, whatever you want to call it, going around and it's sieving out, uh, you know, um, what to listen to, I, I think, you know, is, is really, really difficult. No, I mean, I guess that's right. Um, I think during the whole of COVID, I've just been heads down, shipping open safely, keeping the lights on, making it run bigger and better. Um, maybe, maybe, I've, maybe I've missed all the kind of wild and crazy 
media stories and um, I mean, we are thoughtful about it and when we come across a signal um, in particular if it's something that individuals might um, might feel that they could change their own behavior that's I think when you want to think um, carefully about messaging and how to share that information so for example um, we were asked by Patrick Valance to look at inhaled corticosteroids because there was a possibility that they might be protective and actually a few people were wondering whether that might be um, one of the reasons why people with asthma were surprisingly um, not at high risk of, of death from COVID. So we looked at that and fundamentally, so actually, I mean, just to take a step back, this is a really important aspect of the work we're doing. Um, we did the best possible job that you could do with observational research on whether inhaled corticosteroids are associated with bad outcomes from COVID. It's always a challenge with observational data because you're vulnerable to confounding and people on higher dose inhaled corticosteroids are probably sicker to start with. So if anything, you'd expect them to be at higher risk. And so if you see that they are at higher risk of death from COVID because they're on inhaled corticosteroids at higher dose, is that the corticosteroids or is that the characteristics of the patients who required corticosteroids? Yeah. I think in situations like that where the confounding structure of the problem is so challenging that you won't be able to get a good answer. Actually, one of the most powerful contributions you can make to the literature is to say, look, we had a group of really seriously hardcore pharmacoepidemiologists bang their heads on this and write a really sensible analysis and some really sensible sensitivity analyses. And we have got the largest and best data sets that anyone has or will ever have in the world? And the answer is, not only can we not tell you if inhaled corticosteroids are protective or, or harmful, but actually, in all likelihood, nobody will ever be able to tell you. Now that's important because yeah. also you want to head off, you know, there are a lot of folk out there, um, I guess, you know, to backtrack and agree on you, there are a lot of folk out there who, you know, undoubtedly there will be people doing um, smaller studies in smaller EHR data sets, perhaps with different methods, perhaps with less rigorous methods, who may find a signal in one direction or the other. Um, I think it's actually quite useful to say, look, we've done it in the biggest study. If somebody else finds a chance finding of, um, of a signal and they use the same methods of our, as us, but in smaller numbers, you can be pretty certain that they're wrong because our bigger numbers. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. If they, if they use really different methods, then just bear in mind everything that we've done and said around coming up with the best method. That's not to say that, you know, somebody else may well come along and come up with a great offer. Um, but anyway, when that paper was done and some of the results in some corners um, at, at incredibly crass face value, you could have, you, if you'd really squinted, if you'd been out there to deliberately misinterpret the paper, you could have said, oh, well, there's a slightly increased risk of death from COVID if you're taking high dose inhaled corticosteroids, therefore, I'm going to stop taking my inhaled course or, you know, therefore I'm going to write a headline news story saying everybody should stop taking their inhaled corticosteroids. So possibly in that paper, we really went out of our way to be really black and white. I think there is actually a bit in the discussion that section yeah, that begins yeah. to be absolutely clear, yeah. yes. colon, nobody should change their medication. And we do not think that there is a relationship between inhaled corticosteroids. Um, but I have to say, I think 
we were probably being belt and braces there. And, and also, when you do occasionally see stupid coverage, it's often completely capricious and arbitrary, but it's also also almost always driven by a researcher, right? Like the, the MMR vaccine yeah. uh, hoax. Oh, yes, in your book. Come to be yes. known. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that was, that was a merry dance between both Andrew Wakefield and the journalists. There's no question about it. Um, oh, it's, it's about being honest and being transparent, basically, is what you're saying. You say, look, this is my open you know, open and honest interpretation of the data. And as you've already said, you know, uh, data is never perfect. It's never, ever going to be perfect data. You know, you know you're look, never going to get a complete set, ever. One, one day I'm absolutely certain I'll be bitten on the bum. Like, one day somebody will do a complete yeah. ludicrous story. Yeah. I think people have occasionally in the past written slightly odd things about some of our papers, but never... I mean, often, actually, journalists go out and dig a bit more and they actually add something. I mean, um, we had a very interesting episode with our trials tracker work where we produced a machine to identify every single clinical trial which was in breach of the European Union rules that say you've got to report your trial results by this date. And we put up the resource online and anyone can go and look at it. It's eu.trialstracker.net. And after it went up, you know, it was there for other people to use and to look for and find stories. And some journalists looked and they said, you know, we found we've looked at Public Health England and there's a whole load of vaccine clinical trials in children which have not reported results, neither on the on the register nor in any academic journal. And they are undoubtedly in breach of trial reporting rules. Is this right? And we took a look and we said, yeah, bloody hell. Well done. Good spot. <laughs> yeah. um, and um and actually, the, the happy ending of that is PHE after some, after some initial, um, after some initial in, inter, interactions. Um, PHE, I'm very pleased to say, uh, got in touch with the select committee who got in touch with them and said, what's happening here? Um, and PHE, I think, have now reported the results of those trials. So actually, I think sometimes, you know, journalists can be um, uh, actually quite um, very switched on critical use of data and of, and of data science tools. So I'm just I'm just mindful of time. In terms of going forward, um, I guess one with the COVID work, but number two with the open safely uh, approach, because actually you know it, it is a new, a new approach. You know, I think in many ways the right way uh, of how we should be um, analysing kind of big data. What are your hopes uh, for, for one the COVID work, but also the open safety platform? Well, look, I hope that um, that the rapid secure delivery of open safely which has produced um, an analytics platform with access to NHS patient data on an unprecedented scale, whilst also garnering praise from privacy campaigners because of our approach. Um, I hope that that will be a wake up call that will get um, more people either following us or um, if, you know, if we can get the resource, we want Open Safely to be an open analytics resource that others can use. We've, we've solved many of the problems around um, privacy and disclosure risks, around inefficiencies in analytics, around reproducibility in analytics, and we're here to help. So, um, you know, we've been trying really hard to get uh, funding purely to open up the platform to others. So we're absolutely fine. Um, we've got um, the small amount of funding that we need to do our own research in Open Safely, but we've been asking since March for money to open up Open Safely to the community, to onboard other people. And it's not as simple as working on the GP research database data, CPRD. 
you don't just get a CSV download file that you then play around with on your own laptop. That would be impossibly insecure. Um, So to work on it, you need to have good modern open computational data science skills. You know how to need to know how to drive GitHub, Docker, Python, that sort of thing. Um, But, you know, we're really keen to onboard external users um, and not just running open safely against this GP data. I mean, open safely as an approach, um, as a structured approach to um, creating cohorts that are minimally disclosive from underlying data, generating simulated data for people to develop code against that then runs against the real data after you're sure that your code will run to completion, um, sharing code lists and code by default with specific tools that support people to write all of the intermediate components and algorithms to generate variables about each patient. Um, that whole approach we can build for any underlying data set. And we're in advanced discussions with lots and lots of, um, of different organizations. And, you know, I feel very positive about the future. I think, um, you know, as always with tech uh, and health data, there is legacy and legacy is not just old copies of old software. It's not Windows 95. Um, it's, uh, it's legacy systems and culture and approaches. And um, I, I wouldn't for one second say that we need to have a tabula rasa and switch off the older, slower um, models that are built quite reasonably around monopolies and, and rent seeking. But I do think um, that it's in the interests of the nation to move yeah. forwards. Um, and, and, and I think open safely as proof that you can do that is really important. And also um, open safely, we are, we are sort of on, we're standing here saying with open arms, um, you know, pay for, pay for staff, time pay for developer epidemiologists in our team to onboard others and um in collaboration with nhs england who obviously have to make the choices about who's an appropriate user um and with us doing a review to check that they've got the technical skills we are extremely keen to onboard others and it's um it's been very interesting i mean this is something we've discussed with various well anyway you know it, it, it's very interesting to see large numbers of organizations stepping up and saying we would like give us lots and lots of money we would like to build something like this and what they're describing is a replica of what we have already built yeah absolutely, I think that's yeah. a very interesting cultural I mean, and again i don't feel sad or cross about it i feel i feel fascinated by it as do, as do many i mean others. this is a phenomenal opportunity right what you're describing um and, and i hope that there are people who are listening who will absolutely take you up on that uh because it'd be an absolute well it'd be a travesty i think uh, if it doesn't happen because you know there is so much data um, and we're just not accessing it and sharing it and accessing enough of it is, is what i would say but i think um, also the crucial part of that is um we've got a responsibility to the world to use this data properly. No other country in the world has data on the scale of, of the NHS. Um, and if we don't take advantage of that data, if we don't, you know, it, not just for the UK PLC benefits, which are clearly huge, and, I've, and I'm, it's been very frustrating to watch for years and years people talking in vague terms about the power of NHS data. You know, it's here. Um, and also the other thing is, the NHS primary care data is really the place to start because that's the central spine. That's the, um, I don't mean that in a technical term of the spine. Um, sure. I mean, yeah. that's, the, that's the one record per person. Um, that's the way to go. 
Yeah, it's been there. For, it's, it's the longest standing kind of data set in many ways um, as well compared to secondary care. I mean, in terms of COVID, I mean, what do you see next uh, as your kind of uh, challenge there or, or the ask actually when you pick, you know, the phone rings, uh, what do you think they're going to be asking you for? Look, we've got a long queue of questions um, and they're, uh, you know, we're constantly reprioritizing from various folk across government and, and elsewhere. Um, we're looking at disability, ethnicity, um, and we're also looking really closely at restoration of normal service. Um, I'm really interested in what you might call operational research and um, practical analytics, the kind of stuff which is traditionally done, again, in very closed ways in, in CCGs and trusts. Um, we've, got, um, we've got a lot of really interesting dashboards that we're just starting to discuss with NHS England folk and also with local service delivery people around uh, restoration of normal service and also uh, changing patterns of clinical outcomes during COVID and where those have gone back to normal and where they haven't. And I think, um, I think that's gonna be really interesting. One, um, one small thing on that, if people are interested, we just published a paper in Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine um, about how to bring um, practical coalface analytics in the NHS into the 21st century, which I think is a really interesting blueprint. We wrote it with about 25 others um, on how to get uh, wider adoption of efficient, modern, open, collaborative methods in practical data science for healthcare. Um, and I think hopefully people will find that interesting. Fantastic. And would you be willing to speak at NHS Digital Academy uh, talk? Because I think, uh, you know, I mean, what you're doing is, is you know, is, you know, going back right back to what we said about the beginning, about the clinical implementations at the moment who are, yes, transforming operational flows and so forth, but it's actually using that data to just keep that process going and to continually be driving forward you know, improvement, um, you know, and I think it'd be great to hear you speak at one of our uh, events, actually. So, um, I yeah. very, very, very happy to. Um, Fantastic. Now, ben, I, I'm, I'm, uh, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, all the best of what you're doing. Hey, um, uh, very nice to meet you. And um, maybe you'll track Chris Bates down to ask him some other questions. I think he's at a work emergency. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I'm not surprised. All right. Listen, I, ben, I hope uh, there's nothing to do with Open Safely. Yeah, well, I, I might try your um, your salad combo, but I'm not sure about the garlic on it. I'm totally honest with you. <laughs> I think that was before we started recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. But anyway, listen, enjoy the rest of your afternoon, yeah, and it's great talking to you. Yeah. Okay, cheerio. All right, Ben, take care. Bye now, bye. Thank you for listening. Sign up to our podcast for the latest digital health developments or visit hetshow.co.uk for the latest info on the HET live event, as well as news and updates from the best in health tech.